0: Let's get right to it. Would you turn with me to Mark's gospel as we continue through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We don't skip anything, we're in Mark. And if you turn with me to chapter nine, Mark chapter nine. As it is Father's Day, I'm gonna take a text from our upcoming you know, study through Mark. And, uh, and, uh, but I am gonna, there's kind of a cool story about a father and it uh, gives us a chance to kind of tie in Father's Day. So we're going to do a kind of a, a blend of through the Bible and Father's Day today. Um, if you had to say, what's the state of Father's Day? If we had to do like a state of the union, only a state of the fathers in America, how's things going? You know, it's, it's uh, tough. As a kid, I grew up watching fathers on TV. And back then, even though they weren't perfect, there was, there was some, some fathers that were kind of fun, and they were the ones who would give their kids wisdom and talk to them and take time with them. But then, you know, these guys got bashed. Uh, there, was a, there was a time where everybody was like, yeah, whatever, Beaver Cleaver's dad, yeah, whatever, or, uh, you know, the Andy Griffith thing. Or, and it's almost like we, we looked down on these guys, and then we exchanged them um, for these guys. Um, and these became the fathers of another generation, you know. Uh, by the way, the guy in the middle there, Ty Burrell, was my best buddy in junior high. We hang out and we played football in high school together and uh, buddies, but I remember sharing the Lord with him. Even when we were kids, We're kids. i talked to him about Jesus, but um, we, I'm still praying for Ty that he'll come to know the Lord. Uh, but these guys are sort of the, the fathers of, a, of another generation. And it's pretty bad when an old episode of Andy Griffith's speaks more truth than some churches in America today. Um, you don't believe me? Well, like, for example, here's Andy. Who's to say that the boy would be happier your way or mine? Why not let him decide? Now, I'm afraid it don't work that way. You can't oh. let a young'un decide for himself. He'll grab at the first flashy thing with shiny ribbons on it. Then when he finds out there's a hook in it, it's too late. Wrong ideas come packaged with so much glitter. It's hard to convince them that other things might be better in the long run. And all a parent can do is say, "Wait, trust me," and try to keep temptation away. Amen, brother. Preaching, Andy. Uh, you know, uh, but this idea, you know, um, our world, you know, uh, has really moved away from just good old-fashioned wisdom and biblical common sense and truth. And uh, now it's hard to find even that in some of our churches today. And um, I believe what we're seeing today is so um, actually um, coming from a source that's so dastardly and even demonic. Um, you know, be, between our diminishing of the patriarchal norms, you know, of fatherhood and our culture sort of, you know, if you'll notice, they're always kind of speaking against fathers and dads and even well-meaning little jokes and stuff that people, you know, he's got a dad bod and, and he's, and he's uh, dad jokes and stuff. I know that that's all well-meaning, but it's all part of this culture that kind of says, yeah, dad, you know, whatever. Um, but good dads seem to be harder and harder to find. Um, it seems, and you know the father role. Part of what Satan's trying to do, not only to tear apart the whole family, but to diminish the role of the father. Um, you know, by the way, these are dangerous times for dads. Uh, today, we're watching. You know, the world really uh, diminish the need for even a dad. The Atlantic Monthly did an article uh, titled entitled "A Paternal Contribution May Not Be as Essential as We Think," and they went on to write an article about how dads are really not that necessary. Uh, New York Times said in an age when more and more mothers are the sole primary breadwinner, do fathers really bring anything unique to the table? And the argument of, the, of this article is that no, they don't. In fact, they bring abuse and bad behavior and stuff like that. And that's kind of the narrative of the New York Times. Um, you know, our, our, our culture is attempting to erase, you know, the, the creation of male and female and diminish even the roles of women. Uh, let's erase them all and just say, you know, uh, male and female is not even that important. In fact, you know, it was, it was uh, brought to attention that there's an agenda to dismantle the nuclear family. And when we saw that in, like, say, the Black Lives Matter agenda in their website, before they removed it, um, that was the one thing people should have said, yeah, before you get all onto Black Lives Matter, you probably should have noticed their Marxist agenda of destroying, you know, dismantling the nuclear family. Fathers and mothers aren't really that important. And um, we've graduated from not caring about fathers and mothers to now we don't call them mothers anymore. We call them birthing people um, or pregnant people, uh, people who menstruate. Uh, we're all into our gender mo- pronouns and male and uh, in, in women's sports, drag shows for kids. I mean, we've just taken it so crazy level uh, in our culture that um you know suddenly, which once was just kind of social justice and equity um uh, and even systematic uh racism and the patriarchal um you know evil that's been part of our culture, people have bought that hook line and sinker, and because of that, the dad is sort of an endangered species um and I wonder you know where that comes from. the Bible tells us where this comes from and and this is one of those. Um, you know truths in the Bible that a lot of times we as Christians like to sort of avoid um, the idea of spiritual warfare and the demonic, uh, but the Bible says a lot about that. Uh, you know, the, probably the key reference is Ephesians six twelve. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Um, and. Um, you know, what's interesting is the world's not even trying to hide that anymore. That a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, um, you know, the cancel culture, uh, canceling men and women, fathers, and then getting all the way into the transgender movement and the, you know, uh, gender affirming care and all this stuff that we're watching, it's all very demonic. And the world doesn't even try to cover that up anymore. In fact, they're celebrating the evil nature of things like transgenderism. You know, it's a miracle to me that anybody watches the Grammys anymore at all. That's a miracle. But even more shocking is is the Grammys. You know, I didn't watch them and most people didn't. But it, the one thing that got all the press was, um, you know, Sam Smith and, and his cohort Petrus. Petrus, of course, is a self-proclaimed, um, you know, transgender woman. And uh, Sam Smith is a non-binary, whatever that means. He's just, um, and then he got on there, dressed up like the devil, and had like a sat- satanic seance there at the Grammys, and they had all these little demons running around, and they were all transgender people, and uh, and everybody's, oh, oh, that's so wonderful, great, and they were clapping all the grand Madonna was there celebrating, and all these people, and we wonder, wonder where this is coming from, and they're just boldly declaring, yeah. This is where it comes from. Did you see uh, this year the Satan Con? You say, What's Satan Con? Well, it's a convention, a Satan convention. Boston Satan Con goers shred Bible pro cop flag during opening ritual while they're chanting, Hail Satan. A group of Satanists cheered as two leaders opened Satan Con uh, in 2023 f- with a formal ceremony and renouncing symbols of oppression by ripping up a Bible and also a thin blue line flag representing the police. Um, they said, we stand here today in defiance of their siege, you know, Bible people, and destroy their symbols of oppression, this uh, female leader told the crowd before ripping the pages out of the Bible. Um, uh, Satan Con, you might say, well, but that's just a bunch of, a few people in Boston, some crazy people. No, Satan Con, a sold out three day event has been found, uh, touted as the, the largest satanic uh, gathering in history. Uh, it was huge and it's being hosted uh, there in in Boston. Um, And uh, if you wanted to contribute to or go to their classes and their sessions and what have you, they had the sessions like Sins of the Flesh, um, which uh, uh, subtitled Satanism and Self-Pleasure, taught by Eric Sprenkel, a sexuality studies professor at Minnesota State University. Or you could have gone to this one, Reclaiming the Trans Body, Atheistic Strategies for Self-Determination and Empowerment, offered by Debbie B. Dillard Wright, a transgender woman who serves as University of South Carolina, Associate Professor of Philosophy, um, and on and on it goes. And you know, a few years ago, we were all shocked when we you know, heard New York Post article, Parents Slam School's Sick Satan Club for children as young as five and called it disgusting. But that same group now is going all over our nation. There's these Satan clubs that are uh, sprouting every which way. Um, It's not even being hidden anymore. And they're coming for our children, our kids to a whole new level, at the same time diminishing the role of the father and uh, diminishing dads and what have you. And we wonder, uh, what's the state of fatherhood in America? Well, I'm gonna say the state of the fatherhood is not good. Um, and I believe dads need to maybe take a hard look at what we're doing and what we're not doing. Did you know that Satan wants to rip us off, rip our families off, and rip our children off? And I believe that we are called to stand against these spiritual, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The the New Testament uh, tells us the truth, but the Old Testament gives us these pictures. It's like a big picture book that illustrates uh, the New Testament truths. One of those stories that kinda, I'm kind of reminded of is uh, this perfect picture really of the children of Israel in Egypt, there in Exodus chapter eight through 10. Remember the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. That's what Satan wants to do is enslave you to the world and the world system. And there's a lot of people that are being enslaved as we speak. The picture is Egypt is a type of the world and Pharaoh is a type of Satan and the Jews are God's people. Well, you know, God calls Moses to deliver the people from Satan, uh, from Pharaoh's hand, you know, there in in Egypt. So Moses goes and, you know, says, let my people go, you know the story. But Satan doesn't want you to leave Egypt. It doesn't want us to leave the world. It's like Pharaoh doesn't want them to leave Egypt. So God starts sending all the plagues, and eventually the flies come, the plague of flies, and that's the one where Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. They say, okay, we gotta get rid of these flies. So So he says, tell you what, Mo, we'll make you a deal. Um, And by the way, Satan's into compromise, just a little compromise here or there. And he says, Moses, you know, get rid of these flies. If you get rid of these flies, we'll let you go worship. You know, you can go out and worship your God in Egypt, but don't leave Egypt. Stay here, worship God, it'll all be great. And Moses is like, "Uh, no, the Egyptians will despise us for worshiping our God. It won't be safe for us as Jews here in Egypt. We're not gonna do that. And so there in you know, chapter eight, verse 25, that's the first compromise Pharaoh tries to make. Just, just stay in the land, worship your God. Moses says no. Well, he says, okay, compromise number two. What if you, i tell you what, you can worship your God, but just don't go very far away. Just go just outside of Egypt and worship God. Why would Pharaoh not want the children of Israel to go very far away? This is a no brainer, so he can get them back. Uh, He wants, if he can't keep them in Egypt, he wants them just near Egypt where he can reel them right back into the slavery that they were in. Um, And Pharaoh, uh, you know, suggested that. Moses said, yeah, we're not gonna do that. So he went away. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, whatever. Well, then the Lord kept sending more plagues and more plagues. And finally, the big plague of locusts. Um, I think we have a hard time understanding how completely destructive these plagues were for the Egyptians. You know, the most powerful nation in the world And the advisors come during the plague of locusts to to Pharaoh and says, this plague has destroyed our nation. Make a deal with Moses. And so Pharaoh calls in Moses and Aaron and says, oh, okay, 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 okay. Uh, I'll tell you what, we'll we'll let you go. You can go and leave Egypt once and for all. Only, does anybody remember what this compromise, the third compromise? Leave your kids behind. You gotta leave your kids behind. You can go and be free, leave your kids behind. You say, Brett, what society? what people group would actually do such a thing? The answer, the United States of America. As we hand our kids, you know, smartphones with the whole world at their fingertips of horrifyingly evil content, Screen time, and we just keep feeding our kids screen time, not really knowing what the agendas are of the shows they're watching and wondering why our kids are thinking differently and wrongly about things. Um, Just sending our kids off to public schools where where there's not really any indication of an education, just an indoctrination that's going on that's happening in our public schools. Now, I always have to say, because I really do mean this, if you're a Christian teacher in a public school, you are at the front lines and we are praying for you. You are in a difficult spot. Um, and uh, and I, I think to be able to stand up, you know, with Gay Pride Month, all the teachers in most of the schools around here are decking out with their rainbow gear and their pride stuff. And if you're a teacher that doesn't do that, you kind of stick out like a sore thumb. And they will either quietly think of you as a homophobe, bigot, hater, which is totally made up. Um, I'm convinced the Christian Actually, loves and cares for transgender people and the homosexual community more by far than these people that have these huge political uh, reasons for embracing those things. But it's ridiculous. And, and uh, we just want to know you to know if you're a teacher, we're behind you. My daughter is a teacher. I, I get graduated with an education degree. I'm a teacher, uh, really. That, that's what I went to school for, and I have a heart for that but the schools, we've lost it. And, and, and a lot of times we as parents, I think eh, they're gonna get a little bit of that, but it's all right. Our, we're, we're, you know, our kids go to church at Eighth Creek. So you're telling me that one hour here at Eighth Creek is gonna be enough to combat the five hours or eight hours a day or whatever, five hours a day at, at public school that we're gonna be able to do some uh, battle with that. I feel like parents a little glib, a little naive, and especially fathers and grandfathers. Um, and I think just like that, well, the locusts, they said, okay, leave your children behind, but Moses said, remember Charlton Heston, we will go with our young and our old, and we will leave the bondage, the way Charlton Heston said bondage was glorious. So Pharaoh's like, yeah, whatever, and so they go away. Well, then more plagues come, more plagues come. Fourth compromise came in the plague of darkness. Pharaoh calls Moses in and says, okay, okay, okay. Tell you what, you can go, and bring your kids and you can leave, only leave your flocks and your herds behind. That was the last compromise Pharaoh offered. Question, why did the children of Israel want their flocks and herds? Anybody know? For sacrifice. It wasn't for eating. Some people think, oh, they need it for burgers, you know, out in the was they were wandering in the wilderness. But they didn't have enough flocks and herds for that, two and a half million people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, They would need manna and some other things there. But um, the reason they needed their flocks and herds, and Moses made this point, we will go with our flocks and herds that we might be able to worship and sacrifice to our God. Pharaoh wanted, hey, if I can't keep you in Egypt, I'll keep you near Egypt. If I can't keep you near Egypt, I'll get you to leave, but leave your kids behind. And if you don't leave your kids behind, I don't don't want you to get too radical. And you, you know, leave Egypt, whatever, but don't worship your God those are the same compromises satan's doing today. Sadly, I fear that there's a culture in America that kind of says, "Yeah, whatever. Uh so what it's happening." Um and what ends up happening is we don't realize that the demonic evil in our country is starting to envelop our country. Now, you say, "Brad, okay, can we get to our passage in Mark chapter 9 yet?" Um I'm like, "Happy Father's Day." It's like uh it's like we're talking about demons and all this. Um well, uh, when you, one of the things that the gospel of Mark, the unique characteristics of the gospel of Mark is he doesn't let us sidestep demonic stuff. The other gospels kind of once, in a, you get a little awkward mention of a demon-possessed person here and there, but in, when we come to these passages, we're not. a lot of times I think we as you know, Westernized Christian Americans, we don't really know what to do with these demon passages and what happens there. Uh, But Mark doesn't let us get away with that, you know, just to sweep it under the rug. Mark makes us deal with the power and the presence of Satan and his demons. Uh, Let me go through a quick review. Remember chapter one, we saw Jesus preaching his first sermon there in Capernaum? And as he's preaching, some demon possessed guy comes up and starts shrieking and saying, leave us alone, Jesus of Nazareth, what have we to do with you? You know, and Jesus has to deal with this demon possessed guy in Mark chapter one. In chapter three, when Jesus is just walking down the street, demons would run up and fall down, you know, possessed people would fall down and say, you are the son of man, you know, and they'd start shrieking stuff and Jesus shut their mouths. Uh, This happened like lots, it says, lots of times. In chapter five, Jesus cast out thousands of demons in one guy there at Gadara. Remember he said, we are legion. Um, and by the way, uh, I, I, I think it's interesting that in, when you hear demons talk in the Bible through people, they use different pronouns than we use. I'm just saying, you can just check it out. Um, uh, they're like, you know, uh, we are legion for we are many, you know, kind of thing. Um, uh, chapter six Jesus uh, sent out the disciples to do two things. He said, I want you to go out two by two to preach the gospel and to what? What was the second assignment? Cast out demons. That was their assignment. Again, we we as Christians today we're like, oh, Jesus sent them two by two to go preach the gospel, and we we don't want to oh, and the cast the demon part out too. Um, chapter seven on Wednesday night we saw Jesus approached by the Syrophoenician woman who had a daughter who had, uh, as she said, uh, was uh, you know had a devil kind of thing. Uh, Mark doesn't let us get by without dealing with the demonic, and it's all throughout here. And now in chapter nine. We have another such story. Question, why was there so much demonic stuff going on here in the Bible when we don't necessarily see the same level of demonic activity today? Now, if you've been around for a while and you've been living in Portland for a while, you might be starting to recognize some demonic things going on. Uh, and you know, all you have to do is go downtown. And one of the links, by the way, the Bible makes with um, drugs, is demonic activity. I I know this all sounds kind of heebie-jeebie and trust me, I'm not normally a conspiracy theory heebie-jeebie guy, but I do believe the Bible makes that connection. When it talks about demonic things, it often uses the word pharmakia, which is also the word we use for pharmacy or drugs. And if you've been around people who've been using heavy drugs for lots of years who are not saved, you can see a demonic influence that's there, and it's 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 destructive, it's self-destructive, de- even physically. Um, it's shocking what happens to a person's body when they're on meth. How they look like you know, a 24-year-old woman can look like a you know an old woman who's lived you know 80 years of life uh, just from drug abuse, and and it's it's you know cutting and mutilation and all this stuff always linked to demon stuff in the Bible. Self-mutilation, self-destruction, even suicide, linked to demonic stuff in the Bible. So why the uptick of demon stuff in Jesus' time versus our time? I think I can give you maybe one suggestion. If you're Satan, and you're trying to doom the world and cause evil around and do your destructive stuff, and you find out that God sends his son to save the world from sin, what do you do? well, you probably throw everything you've got at that situation. Um, I'm not surprised that everywhere Jesus walked, demons were throwing themselves down saying, oh, you're the son of man, and and Jesus has to stifle them. We shouldn't be shocked when God becomes a man, and we shouldn't be shocked where demons are everywhere in Galilee at that time. You're like, man, there's so many demons at that time. Now, does it stand to reason that if there were a lot of demons around, as the Bible, especially the Gospel of Mark shows, when Jesus came on his first coming, Will we start to see an uptick of demon work when Jesus gets close to his second coming? Well, as it turns out, the second coming of Christ, the Bible tells us about the precursors to that, the tribulation period, Revelation 6 through 19, and we see a massive uptick of demonic stuff. If you read Revelation 6 or 9, it gets kind of crazy, like almost um, you know uh, movie level demon stuff in the tribulation. Remember in the tribulation period, the, the earth's gonna open up and all these demonic frog-like creatures come zipping out of the earth. <clears throat> Do you guys remember what those frog likes are gonna be yelling to, to the nations of the world? Anybody? One person listened last time we talked about this. Go to Megiddo. That's what these frog-like demons say. Go to Megiddo, go to Megiddo, go to Megiddo. Right, you're making that up. Nope, read your Bible. These these demon-like entities come out of the ground. Where where did these demons come from? Well, there were demons that were particularly evil in the days of Genesis and the Noah story in Genesis 6, if you remember. And the Lord locked them into a special holding place, the Bible says only to be released one final time during the tribulation period. And these demons will come out and and it'll cause the nations to go to Harmageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. um, And that's where the last battle is gonna be fought. These are gonna be real demonic entities directing the nations. That's gonna be in the tribulation. Now, I believe we're gonna be taken up to be with the Lord before all that happens. But isn't it interesting that demonic entities seem to, uptick during the time of Christ, and I wonder if that's what we're seeing today. With all the craziness, people go, oh, this is so weird, and I can't believe people believe this stuff about men competing with women. I can't believe this transgender thing and gender-affirming care is so widely accepted. How is that possible? And the answer, demonic influence. It's, It's not wrestling against flesh and blood. That makes no sense. It's principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness. And that's where we come to our text. And we see how a father deals with this, and there's much to learn, much to glean in the days we're living from this story. Let's pick it up, Mark chapter nine, verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and scribes questioning with them. And straightway, all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? Now, pause for a second, what's going on? Well, you gotta remember the early part of this chapter, Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, they come down Mount Hermon where the Mount of Transfiguration story took place. Remember Moses, Elijah, Jesus, Transfigured. They come down the mountain, what do they come to? Well, that's where we pick this up. They're coming down the mountain and they see the other nine disciples. They're sort of contending with the scribes. Now, the scribes were the intellectual academia bunch of the group. And it seemed like there was a hubbub, a stir, almost like a miniature riot going on here. And the disciples were talking and the scribes were talking and the crowd was kind of freaking. It'd be a little bit like maybe if you could picture in downtown Portland, Antifa meeting up with proud boys uh, and uh, and you'd go, that's kind of what Jesus comes down to, uh, sort of a skirmish. Um, So why the skirmish? Well, there's something that happened that caused a stir. um, And what is that? Jesus goes to the scribes, hey, why are you contending with my disciples? You'll see it says there in the King James, what what question ye with them? But um, your margin says, or among yourselves. There's there's like a theological sort of debate going on here. Now, by the way, when people don't know what to do as Christians, I notice they defer oftentimes to theological debate. Uh, They'll stand around and argue theology. One thing you never see Jesus do, interestingly enough, he's never standing around arguing theology. He's so busy doing good things and serving and loving and healing. And you never see him standing around arguing with the scribes and Pharisees. He's speaking truth powerfully, but he doesn't go back and forth arguing really uh, to any real lengths. So basically what we see here is the disciples are in big trouble. Um, because there's something going on. What's going on? Well, Jesus, when he asked the question, what's going on here, basically, verse 17, and one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, some kind of spirit that makes it so he can't talk. And verse 18, whether, uh, wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. Now, the, the word teareth them is an old English word, means kind of throwing this, this young man, to the ground. That's what it means, tearing. Uh, You might even see in your margin, dashing him against the ground is the idea. So this demon is making him unable to talk, throwing him to the ground, and also, verse 18 goes on, and he foameth, the idea is foaming at the mouth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. This poor father. This is what started this huge stir. The father came up with a demon possessed boy. We don't know how old this boy is, but um, but he says to the disciples, "Remember, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two to go and cast out demons and preach the gospel." But the disciples couldn't do it, and because of that, they find themselves sort of in a controversial pickle with the multitudes freaking and the scribes questioning and the disciples, they're just kind of scratching their heads, not knowing what to do. And Jesus comes to the scene and then the guys, the, the, the kid's dad comes in, well, here's what happened. I brought my, my son and, and uh, they couldn't do anything. Have you ever felt like that where maybe these disciples, I can relate by the way to the disciples here because there are times in ministry where I really, really wanna help someone who's going through really tough things, whether they're really depressed, Man, your heart goes out to someone who's dealing with depression. And so you pray for them and you share with them, you know, encouraging scripture. Um, but there's times where it's just to no avail. And you just kind of think, oh Lord, help this person. And, and um, you, you know, but you cannot. Like that's what it says. The disciples are trying, but they cannot. But when we can't do anything, that's when we start arguing theology. That's what the disciples end up doing. Um, now, one thing that's important to know because we like to see the power of God move in us and through us. And the Lord does that from time to time, and the disciples even knew that from time to time, the Lord doing miracles through them. But does that always happen? Well, that's the thing, most of the time it doesn't. That's an interesting thing. Um, Let me ask you a question. Who was the greatest man ever born among women according to Jesus? John the Baptist. That's an interesting declaration that Jesus made. Now, if John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born among them, what were the great things that he did? Well, let me ask you a second question. How many miracles did John the Baptist do? Zero. Isn't that interesting? The wild, crazy guy eating grasshoppers and honey and wild locusts with the crazy hair out in the, you'd think he'd be full of miracles too, you know? But he didn't do a miracle. In fact, John 10 41 and 42, the people said, uh, you know, about John the Baptist, many resorted to Jesus and they said, John did no miracle, but all the things that John spake of this man, Jesus, were true. And many believed on him there. The greatest man ever born among women. He wasn't a miracle guy, he was the guy who was pointing people to Jesus. Every time Jesus would come by, John the Baptist would say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was all about pointing people to Jesus. And that's the secret, I think. In this story, finally this man comes to Jesus. The disciples couldn't help him, and the multitudes had nothing to do other than cause more mayhem, but Jesus comes into the scene. And we pick it up again in verse 19. And Jesus, he answered him and said, "O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you to bring him unto me? Uh, how long shall I suffer you to bring him unto me? And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him straight away, the spirit tear him. Again, that means throwing down. And when he fell down to the ground and wallowed foaming. Now pause right here for a second. Um, the scene's getting kind of worse. You got the crowd freaking, the disciples, oh, we don't know what to do. And the father's saying, "My brought my son and he's wailing and thrashing and now they bring him to Jesus and he flops down in front of Jesus and now he's flopping around, foaming at the mouth. Is this a dramatic situation? What do you do when you're in this situation? Do you just like immediately jump in? One thing that Jesus is very amazing about is he's always seemed to be very calm, very patient. He's never, you know, racing around and freaking out like everybody else. It's funny because if you watch the movies, you think that, oh, when you deal with demons, man, you got to shriek and yell and vibrate and jump up and down and gyrate and, you know, I command you, ah! and do all this stuff and the screaming heads and green vomit spewing. And you're like, in the name of Jesus, ah! you're like, like that's what people do. Uh, but you don't see that really in the Bible. You do see the demonic kind of flipping out. Um, but you never see the person who's gonna deliver through the power of God uh, flipping out. What is Jesus gonna do? He's gonna stay very calm. But what he does is a little bit shocking and it causes me to scratch my head a little bit and say, wait a minute, what's he doing? So the dad brings us on, he's flopping around and foaming at the mouth and Jesus, well, look what it says here. Um, Jesus, verse 21, Jesus asked his father. He turns to the father of this kid and says, how long is it ago since this came to him? And he said, of a child. That's in the Greek, it's uh, since he was a toddler, basically. Now, does this make you wonder, why does Jesus ask this question? It seems so inappropriate. If I didn't know better, I'd say that's kind of inappropriate. But I know Jesus doesn't do anything inappropriate. So it makes me ask the question, what in the world is Jesus doing here? It'd be like if you and a buddy were walking down the street and all of a sudden a truck runs over your friend and there they're laying bleeding on the ground and the paramedics come and you say, oh, here's my friend. And they say, "Um, uh, does your friend have any allergies? Um, Does does your father have any history of pancreatic cancer? Um, You're like, hello, they're dying. You've gotta do something right now. Like like, in some ways, it's almost like that. Jesus turns to the father and says, how long is this Um, question? Do you think Jesus knew how long that had been? I think so. So why would Jesus ask the question? And now this is something that helps when you become more and more familiar with the way Jesus moved and ministered. Uh, even in the Gospel of Mark, you and I have been seeing Jesus. He always pauses at these weird times, weird to us. He pauses and sort of changes things and does weird stuff. Like remember, remember the woman with the issue of blood we studied a few weeks ago? Um, she touches his garment and she's healed. He could have just moved on, but he stops the whole crowd and says, wait, somebody touched me. And Peter says, "Lord, uh, hello. There's millions of people around you. There's tons of people touching you. What are you talking about?" And Jesus said, "No, virtue's gone from me." And he and he turns. Now, if you guys were listening back in that woman uh, who was, had the issue of blood, he healed her. But what else did Jesus want to do with her? Does anybody remember? He wanted to make her whole. That's right. Um, see, he had more work to do. And that's always what Jesus does. They lower their friend in the, in the room uh, through the roof and, and Jesus knows what the guy needs. They want him to be healed from his being crippled. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees, oh, what this thing about forgiving a sin? You know, and the, the whole, the, every single time Jesus seems to stop and, and I guess I might put it this way. Jesus always wants to get to kind of the real root of the issue, What's the real problem? And in this case, we can only speculate. What's the real problem? And why does Jesus ask this question that seems to be so unimportant? Um, And I'm not sure I have the perfect answer, but let me just suggest something. And I'm gonna tell you, this is me speculating, but uh, when you get to heaven, you'll know I'm right. No, I'm just kidding, just (laughs) just kidding. Um, uh, I believe Jesus already knew the answer to this question. I believe that Jesus wanted to get to the root of what the problem was here, and it had to do with the dad. He turns to the dad and says, how long has this been happening? Um, Is it possible, especially if you know your Bible, um, that demonic evil often uses a window or a door that we open to allow them to have presence and power in our lives. Now as Christians, I gotta remind you, if you're a Christian, you will not be possessed by a demon or a devil. If you have Christ in you, light and darkness cannot coexist. And so I don't believe in the possession of Christian people of demons. Um, I believe in oppression uh, by demons and you know, temptation and all kinds of other things, but not possession. But in this case, this, this, this young boy is possessed. How does that happen? And um, could it be that Jesus is saying, when did this start? And the dad have to say, it started when he was a toddler. And the question might be, if you would, uh, let me just kind of extrapolate to future, um, Dad, you know, what, what websites were you clicking on? What drugs were you, you know, uh, partaking in? What, what, what things were you allowing in your house that were dark and evil, that allowed the, the door of, of your home to be open to this kind of evil? See, I, I wonder if Jesus was giving this father a chance to understand the root of the problem, it had probably something to do with him being a father. Um, that's why Jesus asked the question. Otherwise, it makes no sense why Jesus would care about how long uh, this happened. And he already knew how long it was anyway, so what's the point? I wonder if Jesus is getting to the root of the problem and, and trying to uh, figure it out. Could could it be that this father had allowed evil? In, boy, in, in this world, there's so many ways to let evil into your lives. You know, um, throughout history, drugs have done that, alcohol have done that. But one of the greatest things that we might bring up uh, and, and appropriate for our day is sexual promiscuity. Paganism throughout history always included perverted sexual behavior. It's very, very linked. Um, when, you, when you would go you know, in the ancient cities in the first century, you could go to the temples of Zeus and Diana and you can worship those gods and goddesses. Diana was this multi-breasted goddess that was this huge stone goddess, or little gods they had too. Um, like, you know, they're in Ephesus, that was their whole thing. They had these goddesses of Diana, and they would worship sexuality. And you know, one thing you have to do, when you see all this stuff about gender fluidity and sexuality, we're sexualizing children today, do you understand, this is nothing new. This is old sexual paganism just reinvented in modern days in vernacular. And little do parents know when they're putting their kids in front of a you know, drag queen show or whatever, they're opening a window of demonic evil into their family, into their lives. And these parents uh, don't even have a clue what they're doing. I don't know what this father did, but I think that's why Jesus perhaps turned to him and said, you know, when did this first start happening, pops? Now the dad explained it was only taller, but then the dad explains even how bad it really is. Check it out, it gets even worse there. It says um, in verse 22, and oft times the dad says, it, the demon, hath cast him, the child, into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Why does the father say this? Uh, could he already know Jesus is on to whatever flaw or failure he had as a father that opened the door for this evil? And the father says, yeah, but my son, um, you know, y- you and I say, well, demons throw him in the fire. But, you know, to a normal person that doesn't really know how to diagnose this, they'd say, this kid is suicidal. He throws himself into a fire to destroy a, the kid. He throws himself into the water to drown. We would say, oh, that's just a suicidal person. But do you understand suicide is demonic. Um, one of the things you see in the Bible is the, the demons are always trying to cut, wound, hurt, and destroy the person that's, that's possessed. We always see that. Could that be, you know, here we, we we're wondering why we're, you know, we're cramming sexuality down children's throats and we're cram, cramming transgenderism and gender fluidity and gender affirming care. We're cramming that down everybody's throats. Meanwhile, Who are the most suicidal people statistically in the world right now? Anybody? The transgender community, everybody knows this. 40% is the highest suicide rate of any people group in the world, and it's the transgender community. And we're wondering, I wonder why that's happening. It's demonic, it's evil. Did you know the National Institute of Public Health um, suicide is the leading cause of death among young people, certain age groups, particularly in the United States, rates of youth suicide deaths are, were rising before coronavirus and then they spiked after coronavirus and it's continuing to spike. Um, the pandemic impacted this public health crisis, but in a new study uh, supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, research examined, researchers examined national youth suicide trends and characteristics in the United States before and during the COVID pandemic, but to no real avail. They they haven't really figured out why such things are happening. Why are American kids more suicidal by far than ever? Meanwhile, our educational system is pumping demonic evil into our kids' brains, and we scratch our heads, and wonder what's going on. We've been duped, and we've become stupid. Verse 23 goes on, and Jesus said unto him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Wow. Jesus says to the Father, the Father says, oh, please, have compassion on, have compassion on him, you know, on us. I wonder why the dad said, have compassion on us. Was it because he knew that somehow he was a part of the whole demonic thing? Have compassion on us. And, and you know, he says, and help us. And Jesus says, if you can't believe, Now Jesus is giving this man a chance to demonstrate faith. Now, if you're this man, what would you be thinking? I know what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what do I say here? I believe, I believe. But in my heart, I'd be going, "Mm, but I don't know if I have enough faith and I I don't even know, I'm doubting. Like, you know that wrestling that goes on in your heart and mind? But you hear that, because the guy even says it. Check it out. I love verse 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Do you kind of sense the struggle there? Yeah, 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 I believe. But help my unbelief. And he says this with tears, desperate tears, this poor dad with his demonic, possessed son. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, the idea is the multitude's getting more up into a tizzy. All this mayhem's happening, the crowd's still up in a tizzy, the kid's still foaming at the mouth, and the dad and Jesus are having this conversation about faith, and then Jesus turns to the kid, and here's where it gets heavy. He turns, um, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. Boy, we could do a study of that alone. Implication, spirits can come out of a person but also go back into a person. In fact, the Bible teaches, if you know your Bible, um, if a spirit comes out and you don't deal with it rightly, the spirit can come back in worse than it did before. Um, there's, there's like an exponential problem then. But Jesus very soundly rebukes uh, the dumb spirit. I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more in him. Verse 26, and the spirit cried, and rent him sore, throws him to the ground again, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, he's dead. Can you imagine that? All the people, the stir, the craziness, the kids foam, and all of a sudden, Jesus commands the spirit to come out, and also the kid's thrown to the ground, and he's just lifeless there, laying there, and the people are like, oh, I think he's dead. Now everybody's silent, the, mo- the mood has changed to kind of This heavy, is he dead? But then the beautiful picture, verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. This is the answer. It's the answer there in a crazy situation. It's the answer today for our crazy situation. Um, Jesus is the answer. Oh, I love this. You know, um, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted up. Mom and dad, whose hands are our children in? Are we bringing our children to Christ? Not just, you know, to Sunday school, once a week, uh, church or whatever. I'm talking about literally making Jesus a real part of life every day, all day. You know, are your kids in the hands of the educators in public school or the hands of Jesus Christ? Whose hands? Because, you know, the world's gonna pull your kids down in this gross, sinful, demonic world, but Jesus is there to lift us up. I I believe Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 40, verses one through three. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of the miry clay, um, uh, the horrible pit, pardon me, and out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Jesus is the one who pulls us up and pulls our kids up. And that's why we, especially on Father's Day, you see, let me just say this. I think that moms and grandmas have a natural proclivity to uh, love and care for their children and be desperate. But dads, if we're not careful, we can become very passive. And I believe in this culture that tries to put down patriarchal ways and strong men that stand and say like Joshua, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve Lord. Oh, that's so misogynistic. The world diminishes what men are created by God to be and do. And there's a lot of men who frankly just kind of cowered, okay, if nobody wants to hear from us, I guess we'll just mouse in the corner and uh, let mom train the kids and do the family devos and hope Junior turns out okay and all this stuff. No dads on Father's Day, this might be a good day for us to kind of reevaluate and say, how am I doing? Am I one of these dads? Am I more of an Al Bundy dad? Or am I more of a Jesus-centered, God-fearing, strong man who's a man of faith? You see, I, I'm I'm sad to see what this world's become. But you know, the answer is right here. In fact, you say, "Well, Brett, that's great. Jesus is had, and Jesus is the one." But the Father and the disciples—they were kind of helpless. That's the way I feel sometimes. But let me give you just two more verses, then we'll get ready to wrap it up. Two more verses in the story. Verse twenty-eight after Jesus lifts up this kid and heals him and he rises up. Verse 28, and when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing, but by prayer and fasting. Interesting, some of your versions don't say fasting. That's the one time I think maybe I should have gone with the uh, New Living or uh, New International because I'm not a huge fasting fan. I like just prayer. <laughs> well, which one is it, Brett? Because your NIV, your New Living, your New American Standard Bible omit the word fasting. It's just this one comes out by prayer. Um, here's what's going on there, by the way. There's controversy in this Mark's passage. Mark's passage doesn't, in all the manuscripts, contain the word Fasting. But you say, uh, well, uh, Brett, are you making an argument that the word fasting shouldn't be there? Um, Well, if anyone could, I would. (laughs) But you're just trying to not fast. Oh, exactly. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, but here's what we do know. Other passages in other gospels include the word fasting here. So we do know they're linked together. Um, But I do think it's interesting Mark leaves the fasting part out technically um, and it makes you wonder what the point is. Well, first of all, let's talk about prayer itself. Prayer is powerful, brothers. The prayer of a, a godly man is so important. Well, but What about us women? Uh, again, I think women tend to pray more than men. I, I think that's a natural way things go. And I, I, I do wonder if the most powerful prayer on the planet is grandma prayers. I do believe that to a degree. But is there a difference between men prayers and women prayers? I'm not sure. But the Bible does say stuff that's pretty, like almost like a splash of cold water on men once in a while. Like Paul jumps out and, and uh, kind of yells at us guys and says, I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Why does Paul make such a big deal out of that? Because men don't naturally just pray. It's funny how we think of lifting hands only in the context, well, when we're at church singing songs, we lift our hands and sing praise. Um, The Bible says, let men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. The Bible even makes a big deal out of the fervent prayer of a righteous man. What is the, it says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? Anybody remember? Availeth much, what is that King James language? It means it's really, really good. There's great benefit to a, a fervent prayer. By the way, what does a fervent prayer look like? Well, that's where the fasting part comes in. There's something about fasting that sort of adds to the fervor level in a prayer life. It's one thing to pray, but when you're fasting and praying, it takes it up a notch saying, Lord, I wanna have a fervent heart to seek your face and to pray. And if there was ever a time since I've been alive, if there was ever a time that our kids and our families need fervent prayers from righteous men, it's today. The war on our children, the war on our families, it's so active and so obvious. The demonic thing, they're not even trying to hide it anymore. And a lot of guys are saying, God bless America. Get your guns and get your you know, Cheerios, save them in case there's times of trouble. And ah, yeah, that, whatever. But listen, what you need to do is a fervent prayer for your kids and your family. And realize we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The weapons of our warfare, the Bible says, are not carnal or physical, but spiritual to the tearing down of strongholds. The enemy is trying to get strongholds in your families. And guess what? We as fathers, we have the privilege to tear down those strongholds through the weapon of prayer. And if we're not doing that, it's our own fault. We have ourselves to blame when we see our kids being sucked in to transgenderism to drug addiction, to the you know, pride month and celebrating because everybody else is doing the same. And we wonder, what, what didn't I teach them differently? Oh, it's a spiritual battle. And, and I believe it's something we should take great care and consideration for. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> um, you know, uh, good news dads, because like me, we all fail and we all make mistakes and we're not perfect. Jesus is perfect. And when you fail and when you can't do enough and you're not good enough, good news, Jesus is the one you can place your hands of your kids into the hands of Jesus Christ. That's what this dad did. That's what these disciples did. That's the default. When we feel like things are going awry, we point to Jesus because Jesus is the answer, not only for the demonic issues that we face today, but for the ultimate salvation that we also desperately need. Jesus is the one who saves us. And if you're not a Christian here, all this goes together. If you're not a Christian, you're vulnerable to demonic influence and and even mind-changing, life-bending things that a demonic entity does, and you may not even know. But the way to protect yourself from that is to have Christ in you, for if if Jesus is filling your life, the darkness can't hide there. Um, And and I just wanna remind you, um, if you're not a Christian, what's stopping you from repenting of your sins? Um, Repentance, by the way, does not mean that you're perfect from that day forward. Some people try to misconstrue that. Um, No, repentance means you change your mind and and change your direction. Um, It's an about face. And it means you're saying, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I've failed and I've messed up before God. And you take your sins and you say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. And then to confess with your mouth, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and accept that gift. It's a free gift. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, not of your works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift from God. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus, it says you will be saved. One of our parking lot attendants told me a few weeks ago that some guy came storming out of the church, kind of, oh, Brett's wrong about that. It's, there's gotta be obedience. It's not just praying a prayer and accepting Jesus and then going your way saved. You've gotta do more. And, and our parking lot guy tried to talk with him, but poor guy, he's just one of those guys who has been misguided and, and you gotta really read your Bible carefully. Of course, obedience is part of the Christian walk. And if you're around Athey Creek, we talk about watching out for sin, running from sin, and uh, repenting of sin all the time. And we talk about obedience, but those aren't the things that save you. That's what happens once you're saved, then you'll wanna walk with the Lord and obey, and, and the result of salvation, um, You know, it, it's, you're not saved by doing obedient things. You're saved by grace through faith, not of your works. Um, and so if you're truly saved, obedience will be a part. And Paul even had to answer the same question when they said, Paul said rhetorically, should we just continue sinning then and let grace abound? And Paul says, God forbid. Of course not, that's ridiculous. And that's what we believe at Athe Greek. We agree with Paul and we agree with the Bible. Um, and so if you say it's too easy to just say a prayer and be saved, and people say that today, but they don't know what they're, ta- oh, that's just cheap grace, they'll say, nope. It's the grace that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. There was nothing cheap about it. It is free, but it was not cheap. But it's there for the taking. And if you've not accepted Christ, can I just lovingly invite you? Here's what you do right here, right now. You can just say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I repent. I have sinned, I've made mistakes, and I probably don't even know all the sins that I've really committed but I acknowledge that myself a sinner and I accept that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. If you pray that right now to the Lord, Brett, don't you have to march in front of everybody and come down and stand and make a public declaration? Um, public declaration is a work that is a good thing to do at some point in your faith and walk, and it probably will be required of you at some point, but that's not what saves you coming down in front of a multitude of people. Um, Romans would have put that in there. You must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and walk in front of thousands of people and, and confess Christ boldly in front of everyone and you shall be saved. It doesn't say that. It says confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, Jesus, that he rose from the grave and it says you will be saved.